Hola, mi gente. My name is Jessica Yanez, and I want you to join me for some wine and chisme. The Wine and Chisme podcast was created to amplify voices across communities of color, all while drinking a glass of wine. From wine talk, interviews, and recaps of all things pop culture, join me every Wednesday for the chisme. Please make sure to check out the Wine and Chisme podcast and other amazing podcasts as part of the Latina Podcasters Network. Hola, hola, mi gente. I'm Jessica Yanez, and this is the Wine and Chisme podcast. A podcast created to amplify voices and share the stories of people from BIPOC communities doing remarkable things. All while sipping on a glass of wine. So welcome to your new Wednesday. The Wine and Chisme Wednesday. Oh my gosh, mi gente. Thank you for, welcome to another episode of, I can't even talk. I'm already fangirling out of the Wine and Cheese My Podcast. I am really excited to have Natalia Molina on with me today. And she may not be familiar to you now, but if she's not, she should be. And let me tell you why. She's a distinguished professor, professor in the Department of American Studies and Ethnicity at the University of Southern California. And she has written books. She's written op-eds. Obviously, she is a professor and she knows what she's talking about. And there are so many things I want to ask her. So, Natalia, welcome so much. Or do you, do you prefer Professor Molina? Oh, no, Natalia is fine. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. I love the way that you bring so many different viewpoints and experiences and life paths to your listeners. So I'm happy to be on. Oh, thank you. I lo- I was telling her I was bound girling right before this because I'm reading these op-eds and parts of articles she's written and everything. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. So let me read the bio, your, your full official bio. I don't know if you're partaking in the wine today, but I will introduce the wine that I'm drinking and then we'll get into it. Natalia Molina is a distinguished professor in the Department of American Studies and Ethnicity at the University of Southern California. Her research explores the intertwined histories of race, place, gender, culture, and citizenship. She's the author of the award-winning books, How Race is Made in America, Immigration, Citizenship, and the Historical Power of Racial Scripts, and Fit to be Citizens, Public Health and Race in Los Angeles, 1879 to 1940. Her most recent book is A Place at the Nayarit, How a Mexican Restaurant Nourished a Community on Immigrant Workers as Placemakers, including her grandmother, who nurtured and fed the community through the restaurants they established, which served as urban anchors. She co-edited Relational Formations of Race, Theory, Method, and Practice, and is now at work on a new book, The Silent Hands That Shaped the Huntington, A History of Its Mexican Workers. In addition to publishing widely in scholarly journals, she has also earned for the LA Times, Washington Post, San Diego Union Tribune, and more. Professor Molina is a 2020 MacArthur Fellow. There's a lot there. <laughs> so before we get into the cheese, may we always start with the wine. Are you partaking today? I didn't even ask you beforehand. 
I could partake after the interview. I'm I'm impressed that you can do both. <laughs> <laughs> I've built up the muscle. You just got to <laughs> practice the muscle. <laughs> so I'm actually on my very last glass of this Seis Soles white blend. It's a 2020 blend and it's an Alvarino and I think a Sauvignon Blanc. And it's really, really good. It's out of Lodi. I'm actually friends with the winemaker, Chris Rivera. And this is probably one of my favorite. It sounds really weird, like, oh, this white blend. But we don't give enough credit, I think, to, to blends of wines. Because if you do it right, it's beautiful. And this is one of my favorite ones. It's light. It's citrusy. It's like, oh, just the flavors are just so... And for summer, and it's hot, right? It's already getting really hot. So... Salud to you. Salud. And while I don't have my wine, I will say that I lived in Spain for a year. And Almarino is a top wine in Spain. And I was in the south of Spain where it gets hot. Oh, well, that's why it grows perfectly, I guess, in Lodi, huh? <laughs> yes. I love Riojas. And I, I've never been to Europe, which... I really want to go. I've been like the only, the farthest I've been away has been like Central America. I've been to Costa Rica, but I really want to go to like South America as well and try some of those wines. But I really want to go to like Spain and France and Italy and even like the um, Crete area and stuff like that where a lot of wines are. So one day I will make that happen. I will, um, before we jump into the bio, I will tell you one thing about me that relates to this. So I'm first gen. I never did study abroad. I encourage all my first gen students to do study abroad. And as you said, I'm a professor. So I had the opportunity to apply for study abroad directorship. I taught in the UC system for 17 years and we have a great study abroad program. Anybody teaching, being in the UC system, pretty much every school has something. And their financial aid packages work for study abroad, like never self-select out. So I applied or I called just to ask about the position because as most women feel they need to like be overqualified for a position. And so I was like, what do I need to be overqualified, basically? And they're like, um, you, you meet the qualifications, you can apply. No, no, no. So I think I need more. They're like, no, apply. So I applied. I got it. Long story short, I went to Spain. That was how I ended up going to Spain for the first time. I'd never been. I'd originally applied for a job in Mexico. I got that. It closed. And then they called and they said, do you want to go to Granada? And I said, sure. And they're like, uh, do you want to think about it? I'm like, no, it's okay. <laughs> so I took out my Atlas. This is, I'm totally dating myself back before you Googled everything. And I started at the top by Barcelona and I started going down, down. And I still wasn't finding, I was like around Madrid. I'm like, oh my gosh, I hope they didn't say Grenada. Cause I don't know where that is at all. And no, I ended up in the South of, of, of Spain. So one of those kind of things were first I had self-selected out and then it was one of those things where sometimes you just have to leap and the net will appear. Oh no, we do that all the time. And I've talked about this with so many friends in regards to self-selecting out and how many times as, a, as women. And then when you come, you know, as Latinas or my friends who are black women, who they've told me like, Oh, even as a black woman, like how much even harder it is and how we are constantly like, 
okay, I fit all of this, but like you said, what else do I need? What can I do? What can I, and a man will see something, particularly white men, let's be honest, and they'll qualify for half the things. And they're like, oh yeah, I can do this. And I had to learn at some point in my life, I was like, I don't ever want to be hundred percent qualified for something because if I'm M, I realize how quickly I get bored because there's no opportunity to grow. When you're already 100% qualified, why are you going into something without any potential to grow within that? Good point. So I had to learn that. And I learned that from Black women, from bosses, from friends who I feel like there's been so many Black women who paved the way for us, right? And I've had so many Black women like kind of take me under their wing and be like, no, this is what you're going to do. And this is how you're going to do it. Kind of lead the way for me. Now I try and do that for others. Like, no, you don't want to be hundred percent qualified. You're going to be bored. Like, where are you going to grow? What, how are you going to learn more? If you're already a hundred percent, like you want to go into the next level where you get to push yourself and stretch yourself and then show other people how valuable we are. Cause it's unfortunate when we push through these doors, we end up kind of representing everybody that's like us. And if we're, if we're not, you know, saying, look, I can do this. I can learn it. I felt like my motto, my whole life has been like, I'll figure it out. I don't know. I'll figure it out though. No, I've never done that, but I'll figure it out. You know, I feel like that's kind of been my motto of life. <laughs> it's a good motto. It's a, I mean, cause it's confidence. So much of it is mindset and confidence. Well, I've been so, like I said, I've been so blessed to have so many strong. I mean, I have to include my mom in that because she's always been very like, you can do it. And my mom was very much like, uh, she never went to college. She was a single mom when she had me for almost the first five years of my life. And she would always tell me, I want you to depend on yourself. If something happens to your dad, like I don't know what I would do. And I don't ever want you to be in that position. I want you to be able to take care of yourself. I want you to be able to provide for yourself. And she kind of instilled that in me so much that I have to obviously thank her for that to be able to, I mean, I've had my ups and downs, right? Who doesn't? But ultimately instilling that, because even when I have my downs, there's something still there fighting. My dad called me scrappy when my mom said she was worried about me. He's like, Jay's scrappy. She figures it out. <laughs> I think that should be our motto. Be scrappy. Be scrappy. Yes. So speaking of scrappy, you said your first gen, where exactly like, did you grow up? What was your life as a first gen in the area that you grew up like? I grew up in Echo Park. Uh, that's a neighborhood in Los Angeles. And it's a ethnically racially mixed neighborhood. And so I had a lot of working class neighbors. Yeah, they were white. They were Chinese. Filipino, Vietnamese refugees, you know, there were differences, but there were so many similarities because we're all from the same neighborhood and kind of stereotyped in the same ways when you're from a quote unquote bad neighborhood. And I know we'll talk about it later, but you know, that that's part of what really gave me the lens to write this book on Echo Park, the place at the Nayarit. It's about my grandmother's restaurant, but it's also about the neighborhood of Echo Park. It's what inspired my second book, How Race is Made in America, which is getting at what you were just talking about, Jessica, the like how people form 
bonds across the color line when they see those commonalities. So Echo Park was very influential to me. Uh, not a lot of people went to college from Echo Park, but I was fortunate that I always knew that I wanted to. I didn't really know what it was. Nobody in my family had gone, but I was always interested in books and in learning. And so I went to a high school that you know really pushed that. And I went to UCLA. I'm from LA and I'm lucky that my local school, quote unquote, local school was a you know, research university the uh, holy grail of Latinos. That's yeah. what I always joke of. UCLA is the holy grail of Latinos going to college. <laughs> yes, I guess uh, unless you're unless you're a Berkeley person or unless you're from Texas and then you say UT Austin. But yes, for California, definitely for a lot of Latinos, you know, it was a different time so that it was a time period where college wasn't as expensive. There was more government funding. So instead of giving a loan, you might get a grant. So different things that kind of made it doable. When my cousin went two years later, I was like, I've learned a lot, but these are all the mistakes I made. Things like I didn't choose to live on campus. I just thought it was too expensive and I could commute. And that was a huge mistake because I wasn't involved in the culture of the university as much. I you know, kind of righted my path later by getting a job on campus at least things like that. And then once I was there, I did things like I went to office hours and then professors kind of gave me these tutorials. So yes, public universities are large and they're anonymous. But if you go to office hours and you sit in the front row and you raise your hand, you can connect with the professor. So I basically got a tutorial on what graduate school was, how to apply, all those kinds of things. And I did a program through the Ford Mellon Foundations on basically getting first gens into graduate school. And that was a game changer. I went to the University of Michigan and that was crazy because it was like, I didn't even know really what that was, <laughs> but I applied, I got in, I visited, I liked it. The Latinos there were like, just come, we'll help you. And they <laughs> did. And I'm still friends with them today. And then I got my first job at UC San Diego. And about four years ago, I moved to USC. Wow. that That's so much. First of all, I want to say my first introduction to Echo Park was watching Mi Vida Loca. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> that really was because I grew up in, in San Diego. I grew up in North County in Escondido. So I'm sure you're familiar since you were yes. uh, over here. And that's where I grew up. And so I had seen versions of that in Escondido, right? I'd seen versions, friends, cousins, whatever, but not that concentrated, not that lifestyle, because that was not how I grew up. So when you said Echo Park, that was like my first, I was like, oh, I remember my first introduction to Echo Park was Mi Vida Loca. When that movie came out, how did you feel of that being the representation of kind of what Echo Park was and people's first introduction to Echo Park. You raise a really good point. So on the one hand, it's not completely off. And that is part of our culture and part of, you know, being working class and having certain options close to you. So I don't want to reject that. On the other hand, it's the way that because there's not enough varied Latino representation that 
people would automatically assume that the movie is is looking at gang culture, cholas, homegirls. And so there was a certain amount of like, oh, you're from Echo Park. And I remember one person actually kind of physically stepped back. And this was when I went to graduate school. It was like my first month in graduate school. And I thought, really? Do you really think, (laughs) what do you think is going to happen here? So it's kind of trying to hold both those things. So on the one hand, I don't fully blame people for having that reaction when it's all they've been taught about it. If anything, I blame Hollywood more. You know, I I teach at USC and our Annenberg School has done studies that show that 95% of, I think in the last like five years, on a five-year period, there's only been Latinos, like 5% of Latinos in speaking roles. It's so easy to stereotype them. It's so easy to think of them as a type. As a historian, I look at how those types come to be and how they're so easily adapted, co-opted, circulated through the media. But, you know, it's part of it. And then plus, we only look at those kind of cultural stereotypes. We never look at at the structural reasons why that happens. We never look at like, oh, the majority of people from that area didn't go to college. Oh, those schools were underfunded when, you know, Prop 13 passed. Uh, The majority of those people didn't go to college. Oh, we don't look at how educational opportunities were foreclosed when we changed all the funding to them at the same time that tuition went up, right? We don't look at what what people call the structural reasons, laws, policies, all that. It's just so easy to kind of focus on the, ooh, are you that (laughs) homegirl? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely couldn't see that, especially if you're not, not only, it's very, like you said, it's very kind of, specific and within a specific culture. It's not what all people are doing all the time. All Latinos are part of all, well, you know, I think it, there's a lot to, to that. And it's just really interesting when people just latch on. And I feel like anytime there's a negative stereotype, people latch onto that. And I always say, and I've said it multiple times, people fear what they don't know. So if you've never been around black people. And all you hear are these really bad things about black people. When you meet some, you're going to be you're fearful. And then you become, you know, like that xenophobia continues to, to grow and you've never had an experience. There's so many people in the Midwest who maybe have never really interacted with Latinos and they're so afraid of the border and they've never even interacted with people and they've never had this experience, but they're letting all of these outside things influence their opinion, even though they've never even had it. Wine break. Time to refill that glass and come back for more Wine and Cheese Man. Hey, mi gente. Gold Peak Real Brew Tea is here to unleash your sense of try. All right. Can I be honest here? I'm not one who really drinks sodas. So if I'm not drinking water or wine, then you can usually find an iced tea in my hand. And since we're talking about unleashing my thirst to try something new, the next thing on my list is to go on a hot air balloon. The romance of seeing the world from that perspective makes my heart go pitter-patter. And since my other half is afraid of heights, it's something that I will probably have to try by myself or with a group of friends. So mi gente, tell me, what is on your try list? To learn a new language? To travel someplace you've seen in a magazine or your favorite show? Maybe it's just trying to make some time to pamper yourself. Ignite new passions and rekindle new ones. So try Gold Peak then, try something else. Because this taste is worth a try. 
try Gold Peak. Okay, I'm going to spill a little chisme here. I actually met my significant other through an online dating app. Pero let's be real. Meeting someone organically or through an app can be overwhelming, but with Chispa, it could get a little easier. Porque Chispa is the number one dating app of the Latinx community and allows us to be authentically ourselves, sin filtros, porque sometimes it's just easier to connect with someone who understands your background and culture from Go. I know for me, having a partner who is Latino makes explaining things, well, I don't have to explain because he already knows. So create your own profile to attract tu novio o novia for right now or tu cariño por vida and meet other Latinos who share your roots and are just as proud of who they are and where they come from. So next time your tías start asking, ¿y tu novio? Or they want to set you up on a blind date, just download Chispa to meet your papacita or mamacita that you can bring to your family parties. Uno nunca sabe. Something amazing could come out of it. Check out the Chispa and tell your single friends too. It's free. I want to talk about, because you actually wrote an article for Vox in regards to why pandemics activate xenophobia. And I think there was, there's a, a few different things, right? Obviously with the most recent pandemic with COVID, people were calling, well, the former, I don't even like to call him the former president. I just say the former Tito in charge <laughs> called it like the China flu or the China virus. And you had actually even talked about bef- there was actually something before that called the Mexican virus. Why do you think that during times of peril, when something happens, that's what brings out the xenophobia in society to want to blame somebody or a particular group of people? I think it's so interesting that you're asking this question after we just finished talking about Mi Vida Loca, right? Because the two are related. One, we're human beings. We are used to condensing information because we cannot process all the things that are coming into our brain constantly, right? We, we take these shortcuts. It's the way in which, you know, if you're in the woods and you're camping and you see something big and scary and kind of dark uh, in the shadow, you think bear and you take off, right? Because it's your instinct. It's a survival instinct. Unfortunately, those instincts don't serve as well in today's society, where, as you said, we may not have a lot of experience with a certain racial or ethnic group. And we certainly didn't learn their history in school, right? This is not the history that's taught in our textbooks or in our classrooms, maybe when you go to university. But other than that, you don't learn about Latino history, African-American history, Asian-American history, indigenous history, except to know that we took their land, though it's not usually phrased that way. And so instead, we have these kind of shortcuts, these stereotypes, and they're there at the ready. They're what I call in my second book, racial scripts. And so we don't look at the things that produce them. We just look at the scary part. And so if you look at for the COVID-19 pandemic, so much of that drew on racial scripts that were created over 100 years ago, 150 years ago. So when we needed low-wage laborers uh, to do a lot of the work, uh, especially in the Southwest, especially after you know the Southwest was, um, Mexico gave a third of its land to the U.S. at the end of the U.S. war with Mexico, and there was no immigration from Mexico and you know few Mexicans left, then you start encouraging Chinese migration, but only men, because you only want laborers. So you don't want them to have a family. You don't want them to live in your neighborhoods. You just want them to do the work. And our first 
racial exclusion laws were around Chinese. So our first immigration laws that actually were race-based were saying, Chinese, you can't come. And those were in 1882, the 1882 Exclusion Act. Although there was one before the Page Act, just before that, that said Chinese women couldn't come. And it was based on this idea that they would just be prostitutes. But what it meant was you had all these Chinese men here. They couldn't live where they wanted. They couldn't join a union. So while everybody else was getting rich off the gold rush as foreigners, they had to pay the foreign miners tax and they couldn't work there. So all these things are kind of left in place. And remember, you know, that exclusion of being able to immigrate and even become citizens stays in place until 1952. So mm-hmm. you might be like, okay, Natalia, that was so long ago. I mean, but this affected them till 1952. And those stereotypes were revived along the way from alien law, land law acts that said they couldn't own or lease land for more than three years, anti-miscegenation laws that said they couldn't marry who they wanted, uh, they couldn't go to just any schools because they were segregated, on and on and on. And so you could trace this whole genealogy of then why it's so easy to activate all that xenophobia during a pandemic. What I try to also show in my work is like, you can think of this as like a a neat timeline, right? Mm -hmm. But next to that picture, another timeline where the same thing is happening to Latinos, because once those racial scripts are in place, they're there for the next group. So I talked about seeing, you know, excluding Chinese. They were also excluded on the basis of being disease carriers. Well, those things are in place once we've excluded them and limited that migration. And Mexicans start immigrating in larger numbers in the 1910s, both because of the Mexican Revolution, but also because of all the work we need done. Because now you have water systems, water irrigation, the growth of agriculture. When you're talking about California um, and the Central Valley, when you're talking about where you're from, Jessica, closer to the border in San Diego, the Imperial Valley, now you need workers to use that, um, to work that land. And now you also see how health can be not just a method of exclusion, but inclusion. So you have the growth of the public health field and you have public health officials stepping in and saying, okay, we can assimilate them. We can Americanize them. We can make sure they don't spread disease, but we'll need to be in charge of them. Um, Immigration officials, let us help you. And so you see this growth of the immigration system of the border with public health kind of leading the way. And then you see at these times of downturn them saying, No, we don't think actually we can assimilate them. No, they are disease carriers. We better close the border. We better monitor them or we better monitor disease people coming from Mexico. But if white Americans go to Mexico when they cross the border, they're okay, right? So it's the way that race is that organizing principle for understanding disease rather than how disease actually spreads. Wow. You know what? That's so fun. You're you kind of went into something that I would I wanted to talk to talk about anyways. But I think that guy. I don't even know what to ask from that because it, it, you just it's so unfathomable for me to think like that's when people think like that. But when you're talking about like oh we need we need bodies we need people to work and oh let's open the borders and then you're like I didn't realize it was disease that they were they were using that excuse to close the borders again because for a long time wasn't there was almost like a very open 
kind of border policy where workers would come and then they would go back to their families. What was it that started tightening, like where the U.S. started tightening it? Because it's almost like now once people come, they have to stay because they can't do that flow of coming in and out anymore for those for those seasons and for those times. And that and then I feel like that's contributing to people's thought processes in regards to immigration and, and everything. There's so many incorrect assumptions when it comes to immigration. First of all, the first thing is people always think immigrants are coming from Mexico because obviously we the U.S. borders Mexico. And but when it comes to like European immigrants, nobody ever says anything about that. It's almost like, oh, oh, that's so great for your family. Oh, that's so nice. That's so cool that that happened. And if you're anything other than European, then it's like, or Canadian, you know, then it's like, are you legal? Do you have papers? What? So what was it that created something that it tightened it so much that it's kind of caused where we're at now? Yes. So when you're looking at that growth of the border in the early 20th century, disease was one of the ways it could be shut down or open if it was regulated, but it was it didn't necessarily shape every interaction in, in the beginning. But what happens, one of the big changes, and there's a wonderful book by my colleague, Kelly Lytle Hernandez at UCLA, who is also just amazing and has great op-eds. So you can look at her book, Migra, or you could you know, uh, just Google her and see if there's any op-eds that you would like. One of the things that happens in 1924 is that we create an immigration act. And so to your point, Jessica, about European immigrants, at this point, European immigrants aren't really thought of as white. And so this is why everyone has a stake in this conversation, because those are, that are considered white now weren't then. And so it shows you how malleable race is. Race is like this box and it's got these definitions and these kind of ideas of how we think about it, but it could affect a lot of people. So at this point, people talk about kind of the hierarchy of whiteness, what my colleague uh, Matt Jacobson talked about, like this hierarchy of Caucasianness. And so people like Irish, Italians, Jews, they're thought about as not quite white. And so that's actually some of the, the groups that they're trying to slow down from coming, that kind of Ellis Island contingent. And because lawmakers on the East Coast are not necessarily thinking of Mexicans, but to some degree, but then you have all the people lobbying on the West Coast saying, um, we kind of need those Mexicans. We're, we're still building railroads over here. We're developing agriculture and it's their lobbying efforts that allow them to come. And that's when public health is really important to say, yeah, and if you're worried about them, we'll make sure that we, you know, kind of clean them up. As that starts to develop, that's also when you have the growth then of the Border Patrol. So the Border Patrol is not even 100 years old, right? But even then, the Border Patrol is so weak, so small. There's lots of areas where people can cross through. And so you still see that there, there's a lot of growth that, that needs to happen there. You also start to build up visas, all that. So when people say like, oh, when my family came, my, you know, my family came here legal, my family came this. I mean, if it was during this time period, pretty much everybody's family did, right? Because they just, there weren't those mechanisms in place. Mm -hmm. That has a lot to do with it. And then what's really interesting to your point also is with that buildup of the border, people are able to circulate. That really changes in 1965. And there's another wonderful book by a historian at Stanford named Ana Minyan. And she also has op-eds 
and a book called Undocumented. And she really looks at like that structure of Undocumented, how it changes, because Mexicans, anybody from what's considered like the Western hemisphere. So, you know, all these Latin American countries, they can still immigrate um, pretty easily or at least, you know, with a visa or something. There's not restrictions on them like European immigrants. But 1965 happens and they change the laws and they think the lawmakers think, "Ooh, this is going to allow those Europeans to come wrong. It's mainly Asians and mainly people from Latin America. And so that's when you see the growth of immigration from more countries than Mexico, family reunification, all these kinds of things. But what it does is it actually now puts a cap on the number of people that can come from Mexico. So whereas you had this picture like a hose, that hose is flowing, that hose is building our roads, constructing our homes. Those people are a stream that are doing so much labor for us. And now the hose is a trickle in terms of who can come legally, but the need's still there. So everybody else who comes, the same number of people, they're now considered undocumented. And that's how you have the rise of the undocumented category. That with then changes in the 80s and the 90s, Prop 187, fear of immigrants. And immigrants are like, that border is harder to cross. We'll just stay here. So what it actually creates is Latinos wanting to stay here rather than risk the border instead of Latinos going back to their home countries more easily. And you know where I heard this for the first time? I remember being in high school when Prop 187 came out. A lot of us were like, you know, at school, having these like rallies at school or ditching school to go to rallies and stuff like that. But it wasn't really gotten into. I think we just heard like anti-immigration and that's what kind of got us riled up. We didn't learn, or at least me and several of my friends didn't know like all of the nitty gritty of it, right? Do you ever watch Adam Ruins Everything? No. He actually does an entire episode on immigration. And he has something on Netflix now, but I haven't watched it yet. I need to. But Adam ruins everything. It's a whole thing on immigration talking about that, like the influx of the immigration and what was happening during what. And it was really, really good because I had been reading some things, but, you know, especially if people aren't sure, it's a very easily digestible way to kind of get a bigger picture of what's going on. And I think what you said, and then there's all this thing in regards to accessibility and what they're doing and, and this and that when people come and there's just so much misinformation and that kind of exacerbated in 2015. There was already a lot of misinformation. I always felt like immigration was kind of always an underlying thing, but during election years, that's what people would always go to was immigration because it's people, they like to make it a fear-based thing. There's so much hostility towards our community from the Republican Party for people who are very, very conservative. Yet a lot of Latinos seem to be somehow gravitating towards that. Why do you think that is happening? Is it because of this assimilation that they don't want to feel like they're targeted? So if I join them, they won't target me. Like, what do you do you have any theories on that? Sure. So one thing is that we don't really talk about class usually. And there is a big class element to this in terms of people feeling that they've been voting with the Democratic Party and things haven't gotten better. And so that must be about changing parties. Although, you know, we can have discussions about that. So there's that issue. 
there's the issue of abortion, right? So in terms of kind of that conservativeness, that's part of it, which has always been part of it. And it's been really interesting as the decision to overturn Roe v. Wade has come out, as I've been listening to interviews, how many people they interview that are Latino. And I could tell sometimes by the the reporter, I could tell sometimes they're like, oh, I'm going to go interview this, like, happening Latino over there. And she's like, yes, I'm here supporting that. And they're like, oh, (laughs) it's just, it's really interesting. Like these assumptions are being kind of turned over and as well as, you know, it's much, but it's gotten more complicated than just kind of conservatism, Catholicism, abortion, uh, Cubans, you know, who have historically voted with the Republican party. It has more to do with class than it did before. And in terms of the assimilation, that part is not necessarily new. Like 30 years ago now, um, the historian Dave Gutierrez, who taught, at, who taught at UC San Diego until he recently retired, he wrote this book called Walls and Mirrors. And it's a great metaphor for saying like, you know, that first generation, you know, once they become, and the second generation, once they become citizens or they're born, you know, the second generation that's born citizens, they don't want to be stereotyped. They don't want to be told, oh, mi vida loca. Yeah, I, I know all about you. I've seen the movie. I, I, I don't need to know anything more about you. Or, you know, they don't want to be, be told jokes about border crossing. They don't want to be told to discriminate against all that. And so there can be a backlash even within Latinos that don't want that. And so it's that walls and mirrors. And my other colleague, Jerry Kadava, um, has re- recently written a book on that and, you know, has been interviewed a lot on these kinds of things if you want to get more in depth. Because it, it, Jessica, your question is one that I'm getting asked more and more, not just on podcasts, not just by the media, but like when I give talks on college campuses across the nation, people are trying to understand, like, wh- what is this, you know? Um, what is going on? I mean, the head of the Proud Boys, he's Latino? What does that even Arman, mean? Armando, right? Is his name? Armando? I think Enrique. Enrique. I couldn't. Obviously, I don't want to really know who he is because I just remember seeing. And I'm just like, why are we so so many times we like gatekeep our own community? First of all, you know, I've heard this. I'm sure you've heard the term "no sabo kid." Freaking irritates the hell out of me because I'm like. You don't know. And it's a lot of t- a lot of times the people that are calling people no sabo because never went through the things like I'm second gen. My parents would get in trouble for speaking Spanish. They were yelled at. They were hit with rulers. They were whatever. And my parents didn't want me and my sisters to go through that. So my first language is English. I was always a little and I'm I was always a little shameful of that, that my Spanish was not better. And I'm not going to lie and say, oh, I was always okay with it. But to have somebody weaponize your lack of knowledge in Spanish because they don't realize what my parents had to go through and didn't want and how many parents had to go through being humiliated, being hit, being scolded in school. And they didn't want their children to have to deal with that. It just really makes me, oh, it just boils my blood because we, first of all, like you said, there's like this weird turn. Then there's like us gatekeeping. And then there's the, there's also the classism and racism within our own community. You turn on any Spanish station and you can see it. You look at any Spanish media and you can see the lack of representation within the native community, within the black community, like 
there are such things as, you know, obviously Afro-Latinos, and then you have people that still speak their native language in Mexico, Central America, South America, that's, that are, you know, indigenous. And is it just because we are, we are trying to assimilate with whiteness so badly that we gatekeep our own community? Thank you for bringing all that up. So every time I've said something, you're like, oh, there's so much I want to say. I'm like, there's so much I want to say in response to you, Jessica. <laughs> Let me focus on two things. So one thing is, you know, is it that, you know, we gatekeep our community when assimilate into whiteness? So I'm going to pull back the lens a little bit and talk about that structural part. So there are many groups that could not become citizens for a long time. Mexicans, um, and I'll say Mexicans because that's the group that we're specifically talking about in 1848 when Mexico has to cede a third of its land. When that happens uh, at the end of the, the U.S. war with Mexico under the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, you know, even before that happens, even before the U.S. enters war, lawmakers were like, oh, did we really want to go to war with Mexico? Because, you know, we're going to win. We have more, you know, firepower. And what are we going to do with all those Mexicans? And so they go to war anyway. And now the question comes up, what are we going to do with all those Mexicans living in those lands, seated, basically the American Southwest? And they say, well, you know, we're just going to make them citizens. And this is a big deal because 1848, the only group that is eligible for citizenship are whites. Blacks aren't, right? They're slaves. Indigenous aren't, even though it's their land, they don't have any claim to it. Chinese, we already talked about, they've been excluded. And so then even though they're legally citizens, that social cultural citizenship is never given to them. And that is part of why you have groups like the League of um, United Latin American Citizens when it first starts in the 1920s, not anymore, but when it first starts really trying to say like, we're citizens, damn it, accept us, we're white. And that, and, you know, they're trying to claim it. And there's this law professor at Berkeley, his name's Ian Haney Lopez. And what Ian Haney Lopez says, of those cases that made it to the Supreme Court, about 52 of them, naturalization cases where people are trying to argue that they deserve citizenship, by now, you know, after 1865, that blacks can become citizens of those 52, 51 are arguing that they're white. Nobody argues that they're black because they understand that citizenship without whiteness is hollow. So there's a certain degree where it's like either we we it's in our subconscious or we see it all around us. So, you know, there's a certain degree which. I don't fully blame people. It's kind of like the whole thing with like mi vida loca, right? That's what we've been taught. That's what we understand. So there's there's that context, that, that larger historical part to it. To your other point about we forget what assimilation actually meant, that assimilation actually meant that, you know, if people spoke Spanish, they were put in the corner. They, they might get hit at school. They went to segregated schools and parents understood that. So them not teaching their kids Spanish or wanting to talk about that history. And this is what happens to me all the time when I teach and all the time when I give lectures across the nation where people will come up to me and say like, my parents never told me that. I always wondered why they talked about sleeping in a bunk bed in shifts. I didn't know that part of the Bracero program, the Mexican guest worker program. Is that why my grandfather is a citizen, but not my dad because they got deported during repa repatriation. Like they're coming to me who they just met to learn something about their family. And so I was just at a book talk on Sunday 
And I did something different, Jessica. And I think you will appreciate this. I did it at a bar. And I did it at a <laughs> yes. bar because I wanted people who wouldn't necessarily go to a book talk to hear this. And so I'm just going to read one little part. Um, I said, I talked about the community that grew up around the Nayari, the restaurant that my grandmother started, remains tethered to one another today. I think about this community when I eat from the dishes given to me by my mother that Doña Natalia collected. They're from the Franciscan ceramics plant in Atwater, hand-painted with apples and leaves around the edges. The plant has since closed, but it's a popular pattern. As a kid watching I Love Lucy, my first English lessons growing up in a Spanish-speaking household, I noticed the Ricardos own the same pattern. Those dishes say a lot about my reserved grandmother. She wanted elegant tableware and she got it for herself piece by piece. I like to imagine her setting her place and enjoying the sheen and the color of those dishes, not just as a sign of aspiration, but also as a way of embracing the place where she lived and asserting her belonging. And I read that because then what I did on Sunday was I told the audience, I know none of you want to be historians. I know none of you want to write a book or an op-ed and it was an older crowd. You may not even want to do an Instagram story or a TikTok video, but you've all told me something about your history before this talk. Does your family know it? Does your husband, do your kids, do your grandkids, do your neighbor, do the people you go to church with, do, do your workmates know it? Tell your story. And Jessica, all these people like in their 60s, early 70s, start raising their hands. I have something of my grandmother. I have my grandmother's Singer sewing machine. I learned how to use it when I was seven with the push pedal. And I made my mom a dress with a zipper I recycled. And now I wear that dress. My grandmother didn't have those dishes, but both my mother and my husband's mother, every week they sacrificed and they saved these blue chip stamps. And every week they bought a piece of a, a dish. And now I have a place setting of 36 place settings. And I wanted my daughter to have it, but I never told her the story behind it. I'm going to tell her. And I'm going to give my other family member the other half. Just on and on. We have these things in our homes. And sometimes people say like, we need a museum and the Smithsonian's working on it yeah. and, and all that. And it's wonderful. But what about sharing all that with who we have and telling them the story behind it? We can start somewhere. We can reclaim those stories. It's like going back to the old school of, of passing down stories, right? Of when people used to yes. learn your history by passing down story and story and story. I love that. That may, and because I try, you know, I try and remember all of the things. I was six and a half when my grandma passed away. And I was 12 when my grandpa passed away. And so all of those things that I still remember, I try to remember them as much as possible. I literally have these handmade, like stuffed Christmas ornaments that my grandma made, like on her sewing machine. That's exactly what you made. Yeah, I have those still. And then my mom had, she's going to give it to me. She made like a, a Christmas one that had the like a Christmas tree one, but the stuffing is really like, and I said, I'll take it to get it stuffed. Like I will have it get re-stuffed. So it, but all of those little things, you just, you remember, and my grandpa used to work the fields in the citrus fields in, in San Diego. And my grandma used to work in the canneries. And, you know, I remember sitting down with my Tio Chente because I was doing a 
thing for school. And he's just telling me all of these stories about when everybody immigrated and, and what everybody was doing. And every time, like I said, what the, th- like my, my tia Lorraine was one time telling me my tia Rosa ran away. And when you ran away, you're basically considered married when you ran away with somebody and you know, like all of the drama, I was a source of drama because my mom got pregnant when she wasn't married and my grandma didn't talk to her. But when I was born, it was like, oh, I'm a miracle. It's amazing. <laughs> so, but all of those things are so important to keep like, and you find out like the family drama, oh, there's lots of drama, but that's what keeps your family alive. That's what keeps your family different, right? Everybody has their own stories and we might relate to one another's stories, but each story is our own. And if we don't share that, then it, then the history dies. Absolutely. Absolutely. And all the examples you gave are key. And, you know, the Christmas decorations one comes up a lot. Sunday talked about the nacimientos, you know, the nativity sets. Mm-hmm. For me, you reminded me, I have a, a tablecloth and while it's not passed down, My mom had it made for me in the hometown that my grandmother's from. And it's the kind of tablecloth they all use there with that kind of puffy decoration, but Mm. it's on a tablecloth. So absolutely. Yes, it's gorgeous. I'm always like, oh, did we really eat on it? So, you know, every time people are eating now, I'm like, be careful. Don't drip that wine. (laughs) (laughs) I do want to get to the book, but before we get to the book, because I want to, I was talking about this one thing that you wrote, this op-ed that you wrote that is, so unbelievably relevant, especially right now. And you're talking, and the the title is When American Lawmakers Took a Page from the Nazi Playbook. And in it, you're talking about when California began mandating forced sterilization of those men and women who deemed, quote unquote, mentally inferior, inferior or otherwise, quote unquote, unfit to propagate. And then by 1964, the state had sterilized 20,000 people, mostly poor women, African-Americans and immigrants. Women and men of Mexican descent were sterilized at disproportionate rates. Literally, I was just talking about this with somebody in regards. And it almost feels like that's exactly with this reversal of Roe v. Wade. That's what's happening again. Do you feel like, do you think it it's going to get as extreme? Like, I know it's so hard to fathom this, but obviously it's not impossible because this is what happened before. And with these repealings and with potentially other things happening, right? We're already a, you know, people that come from communities of color are already marginalized. And this is just a way to, Obviously, this is going to affect mostly poor people and people that come from communities of color in way more, you know, way in a greater disparity than it's going to affect affluent white people. Do you think it could go back to something like that? Thank you for bringing that up. So the article, I'm trying to remember what it was <laughs> written in reaction to. So I wrote this book and two, I wrote a book called Fit to be Citizens, question mark, right? Basically uh, public health and race in LA, like are, are Mexicans fit to be citizens? Although it starts by looking at Chinese, Japanese, again, to show that once those scripts are in place, you can um, uh, extend them to other groups. And so I often get, asked to talk about uh, these issues when things come up that are related. So I forget exactly what had come up when this happened. 
for this one, what's interesting is that we think that eugenics never happened here. And I'll give you a, an odd example that recently came up. Uh, the, the San Francisco Museum of Art is having an exhibit on Diego Rivera. This is not the most messed up thing you've ever heard. So because they're having an exhibit on Diego Rivera, they took down the portraits by Frida Kahlo because they're going to put them on the exhibit. To me, I'm like, just leave the portraits there and then include some other ones. Like, has, yeah. not, has that man not like done enough to like put her in his shadow? But anyway, so now there was a, recently an article on Frida Kahlo. And I get it. Journalists are busy. They can't look at everything. But what they talked about was when Frida Kahlo went to San Francisco, that one of the people that influenced her was this person named Luther Burbank. He was a horticulturalist that talked about like kind of like plants and propagating and how they worked. And she used these ideas in her art. What's not mentioned in the article, but if you study eugenics, Luther Burbank was a leading eugenicist. He believed in sterilization. He believed only certain people were fit to propagate that. You know, the idea of eugenics is positive and, and negative. So there's a positive eugenics. Certain people can have kids, certain people can't. And none of that was mentioned. And I don't blame the journalist. I think what it is, is it's more significant, more telling of the fact that this is how much eugenics is still in the shadows in our country. Uh, there are parks named after eugenicists. My own campus at USC um, had buildings named after one of the presidents who was a leading eugenicist. So they've just renamed the building. All that being said, somebody might be listening to this and say, Jessica, what are you talking about? You know, sterilization, that's actually the opposite of stopping abortion. But the idea of sterilization was that certain groups are more fit to propagate, that certain groups have better life chances. And the one thing that people aren't really talking about in terms of Roe v. Wade, at least, you know, those that are uh, see it only as a victory, is that if you take a, a state like Mississippi, and that's where the case that was being decided on came from, the mortality rate of for women giving birth in, more in Mississippi is very uh, high in terms of, you know, your, your chances of dying while giving birth are very high in terms of aid, in terms of you know childcare, um, maternity leave, all those things are very low in Mississippi. And you know, you can talk about a lot of states that have that. So it's also about life chances. You know, both are talking about like how what under what conditions can people thrive? They cannot thrive under forced sterilization and they cannot thrive under being forced to give birth either if those systems aren't there. And, you know, I grew up Catholic. I went to a Catholic school. I completely understand the idea of, wait, you know, this is a life. To that, I would say, what programs are we making sure then that people have some autonomy? Did we also legalize complete access to birth control? Did we act legalize maternity leave, parental leave, look at all the infrastructure to support choices to give birth. Even if you wanted to go down that road, because I, you know, a lot of what we're seeing, and again, I, I don't want to see this as like a political decision, but even the, the head of the World Health Organization, it's like people are going to die. We actually need to look at what maternal care is for people rather than having a, a blanket rule that says, you know, even in these, these perilous conditions, 
people will have to give birth. So I think the two are related if we're talking about health and life chances. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I think, like you said, the commonality between both is that choice is being taken away when you're you're being forced to give birth or you're being forced sterilization. Either is, is not in my belief and my heart, neither is acceptable. But I saw that and I was like, oh my gosh, I feel like this is just so relevant. And I needed to ask her about that. I want now, I really want to focus on your, your book. I know I've been asking a lot of questions, but that's because, like I said, when I was reading your art, I was just like, oh my gosh, I want to ask her all of these things. I literally did not. I just, so you guys know, I told Natalia before we got on, I'm like, I couldn't even write any questions down because I was reading her articles and please go to the show notes. Her website will be in the show notes. Please, please, please go to the show notes and and read up all of these amazing things that she has done. I just couldn't even think, but I didn't need anything. I knew I was like, I'm just going to be able to go into this because I just am, I just want to know everything. Now, when we talk about your book, it's a place at the Nayari. I love that this is about your, your abuela. This is about your grandma. So tell me like, Obviously she was the inspiration, but what made you decide now to write this and how does that correlate with how community is today? Thank you. I mean, this has been a great conversation, just kind of riffing off each other. And I love how organic it's been. So I'm so glad you did it that way. You know, for me, I've known the story of the Nayari my entire life. You know, I grew up in this community. I grew up in the grant in the house that my grandmother bought. Um, in the community that she forged. And it, it feels real, really full circle to go uh, for you to ask that question because it kind of goes back to that first question when you talked about Mi Vida Loca. I grew up in an area that was always stereotyped. The fullness of it was never explored in books, in history, in the media, in popular representation, popular culture such as television, movies, anything like that. And I wanted to talk about the richness of it. And part of that, in terms of the timing, had to do with the fact that Echo Park is now being gentrified or has been gentrified. You know, it's changed so much. And so to me, this is the story of any neighborhood that's going through that change. How do you tell people that there was something here even before they moved in? And, you know, I, I understand that not everybody thinks that, but in terms of, living in San Diego for 17 years when we would come up to Los Angeles and we would stay with my mom. And then I'd you know, go out and meet someone at a party or at a bar or what have you. They'd say, where are you staying uh, while you're in LA? And I'd say, Echo Park. Oh, are you at an Airbnb or something? I'm like, no, my family lives there. People live there. there there's a long community there. And even those that really appreciate Echo Park, they appreciate the culture, they appreciate and they see that history as they move in, they inadvertently change that, right? So that rents have gone up. So even if you look at that movie, Mi Vida Loca, many of those people or all the people that were in that building with gentrification all had to move out that lived in that building where the, the homegirls lived. It just all got turned over right? That's not the fault of the people that moved in. Those are the landlords who are like, oh, we can pay more money. We can charge more money. On the bottom floor of that building where the homegirls live in, in Mi Vida Loca is a store called El Bate. 
It's one of the urban anchors that I write about, um, what I call an urban anchor, like that community formation by the community for the community. So not like a hospital or library, which of course we need, but really trying to say all those places we overlook or take for granted. Mm -hmm. So it's a little market mom and pop store called El Bate. It was my my, um, aunt's, my aunt who used to work at the Nayarit and then married a Cuban and they opened up this little store. El Bate refers to, you know, the sugar refineries in Cuba. She got to the point, where she just couldn't afford the rent anymore. They raised the rent. And so she divided the floor space in her store in half and half of it went to service a cafe. And then she got to keep the other half. And then that rent went up because of gentrification. And again, not the fault of the people that move in, but the landlords and the fact that we don't, again, think of the kind of that larger ecosystem. And now even the little cafe that moved in, that place has been priced out. So that's the other thing that we're seeing with this gentrification. Even the places that moved in, they can't afford it. And so it's saying like, okay, how do we deal with this? How do we deal with these individual choices? We know people have to live places, but what do you do for the surrounding area? Do you think about rent control? Do you think about mixed-use housing? Do you think about employing people from the area? What are the different things that we need to do? So really, it's imploring people to have that conversation rather than just to say, well, not my fault. I didn't have anything to do with it. And in the meantime, you keep seeing the residents having to leave, the businesses having to close. I I think that is so true. And that's what is trying to be... I've seen that in when I lived in Dallas um, for the Oak Cliff area. I've started to see that in Barrio Logan, and they're really trying to prevent that. And I get what you're saying in regards to it's not the people who are moving in, like it's not their fault, but don't you think it kind of (laughs) is like, I mean, let's, I do, I'm not gonna lie. Like I'm, you know, cause they see, oh, this is such a cool little area, blah, blah, blah. But you, they go in with no, without wanting to know, the history. They go in without appreciating the people. They go in because, oh, it's cheap over here. And this is kind of a cool hit. Like it turned, you know, how do we prevent it or, or prevent from losing the culture that is being gentrified? Because I think it's, you know, there's so much important history that happens. And obviously, you know, families are losing their homes and then they they don't have anywhere else to go because everything is getting so expensive, which I also have a theory on that. But what is there something that we can do to preserve the history of these areas and the people and help the people that are moving in to appreciate it so they're not so cavalier? Yes. So I don't know if you gleaned from my last answer or from this answer. I am a trained mediator. I really try to meet people kind of where they're at, because if I say, oh, you know, these people don't care, uh, you know, they might not listen to me. So I'm, and they probably won't listen to me anyway. So I'm not really talking to those people. I'm talking about the people that move in and, you know, join the neighborhood council or go talk to their neighbor. And yet just by the fact that they move in, home prices do go up, right? And part of that is just also whether they they plan that or not, all these home prices are going up with the pandemic, right? And and structurally, we our interest rates are going up. We're not 
making more, very many more homes, at least in relationship to demand. And so we're kind of all in this boat. And so for me, for those people that want to learn, for those people that are joining the neighborhood council, um, start going and meeting their neighbors and trying to do first Friday potlucks, all those kinds of things. The part of how do we let people know what was here so that they respect it, honor it, and that it might lead to some preservation. It might lead to programs or, you know, bonds or whatever that may be. There are so many great programs out there going on. You know, in Los Angeles, there are, are efforts for people to document their neighborhoods. There's a great program called Making a Neighborhood that's looking at um, East Hollywood and the Virgil Village area. There are, you know, library programs where they're trying to bring people in. There are local papers, the East Sider and Echo Park with Jesus Sanchez, who started that, right, to always get these stories that we're talking about out there. So there's so many ways of telling those stories. And what I want to do with the book, you know, for me, yes, it's my grandmother's story. I think it's fascinating, but only so many people are going to be interested in reading about my uh, reserved grandmother and the hundred people that she helped immigrate. It has to be a story that resonates with people. And so to me, it's a, hopefully a manual on how to, I talk about what it's like to, uh, do your own history of your, what I call the underdocumented community. Not people aren't just undocumented. Sometimes they're also just underdocumented because immigrants, whether they're documented or not, they're not the type working class immigrants. They're busy working in the field. They're busy doing all these other things. They don't get to leave their archives behind in some library, right? right? And so it's how to tell those stories. And so I hope that it's also a different way. You, I mean, Jessica, you grew up in, in California and Texas and you know, different places have their own version. If you, you have to study California history, what do you what do you have to learn about the mission system? What do you have to go? Well, we have to build the mission in, in fifth grade. Every, I think, I think every, I don't know if it still happens, but yeah, we all, that was our assignment, building a mission. It still happens. What about Jessica, if every kid had to do a history of their family and show how they are California history, a history of their urban anchor. And, you know, there might be issues with that. You know, I I, I get that. I've been a foster parent. Maybe not every kid wants to do that, but maybe they want to go interview the elote man, the paleteria, the peluqueria. You know, they want to go interview um, their dry cleaner, their mom and pop store and get their story. And then we could teach them how to document the neighborhood, how to look up redlining maps when the why neighborhoods were segregated. We can teach them so much. And so that they're in charge of telling their story in uninformed way. I feel like a place at the Nayari is not only your your grandma's restaurant but it's a metaphor for how people can preserve their own history. Now you're going to make me cry. And this is why I didn't drink. <laughs> well, as you're saying, and I'm like, guy, the night can really be anything. I mean, it's, it's, you base it on your grandma's restaurant, but really it's a place to preserve and that can be anything. Right. And it's the stories. It's like you said, talking to the elote man or, or going and just it's that's it. I feel like it's just a metaphor for continuing the present and to continue and to preserve the stories that have been and will continue to be. I feel like that's our drop the mic moment. <laughs> Ooh, I'm getting teary eyed. 
Oh my gosh. Thank you. Oh my gosh. I was not expecting that. It's when we, we have the power to say our stories and cause we don't hear them. And that's why those hands went up at the Boyle Heights bar last Sunday, because nobody has ever acknowledged their story in public. And this is what you get to do on your podcast every time you interview someone. So we thank you for that. Ooh, starting the podcast, it was always a fun thing for me. And it just became something that I was like, I love hearing people's stories and I love hearing people's like where they came from and what they're doing. This is kind of what I've done my entire life where I've been like, hi, I'm Jessica. How are you? Tell me everything about you. Now I get to record it and drink wine, but just to be able to have the opportunity and the honor, it really is an honor. Every person that has shared their story and has been willing to be so open with me, I feel like it is a true honor because of course I've had like some people that are a little bit bigger and and everything like that, but it was really about people that I know. So many people have stories and they're not given the opportunity to share them. And that's really why I started this. So this is like, I just feel like what you've shared with me is kind of at the heart of why I even started this podcast. We're on the same page. And you, like my grandmother, are a placemaker. You do it through podcasting. She did it through food. Well, I want to make sure I give you, I always give everybody opportunity to say any words they might feel to, to sum up anything or to how can actually, let me ask you, how can people find your book, find your social? I, like I said, I'm going to put the website, nataliamolinaphd.com. I'm going to put that in the show notes, but how can people find you and how can they um, get any of your books? A place at the night, I can't talk how race is made in America. There's a lot of like, there's a lot of books, but to be a citizens um, and then how can they find those? The Place at the Nayadi is actually a trade book. The other two are academic books. So, you know, any of them, you could just go to your local bookstore and order if it's not there, but hopefully the Place at the Nayadi will be there. And every time I've been giving a book talk, I've been trying to go to local bookstores and especially, you know, bookstores owned by people of color or ones that have served the community for a long time. But, you know, you could you could Google it and you can find it on any website where you would normally buy your books. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram at prof underscore Natalia M. And if you're looking for um, small bookshops to support bookshop.org. Absolutely. Yeah, that's usually where I go through. So please, if there's anything else that you want to add, please do so. Um, I guess I'd just recap what we talked about. I mean, one, to make sure you don't self-select out. Two, to have an open heart and curiosity in the way that you approach this podcast. And three, tell your story. Tell your story. No one else will. Yeah, if you don't do it, nobody else will do it for you. Ooh, Natalia, thank you so much for sharing so much. I really appreciate you bearing through all of my questions. Cause I like, I wanted, I'm one of those people. I'm like, tell me more, tell me more. I want to know everything. <laughs> so much fun. Thank you. I really, really appreciate it. So Miente, please, please go support, go follow, go read, read up. It's so important that we know our stories that we know not only our individual stories, but our cultural stories, because those are things that we're not told. So until next time. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Wine and Cheese Med Podcast. For more information on today's guest, please see the show notes for links to websites and social media channels. You can check out all things Wine and Cheese Med on our website, thewineandcheesemedpodcast.com. There, you will find the names of wines I drink each episode, as well as additional information on me, the podcast, and you can even apply to be a guest straight from there. You can also find us on social media at The Wine and Cheesemit on Instagram and at The Wine and Cheesemit Podcast on Facebook. Remember, if you want to hear more Wine and Cheesemit, please subscribe, rate, and review. Five-star ratings are appreciated and those positive reviews are appreciated even more. Until next time, saludos.